A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Why aren't... Democrats doing much better in elections for Congress and also in state races. Well, one big reason is they're losing a lot of black, white, and Hispanic working-class voters. Yeah, we heard a pretty convincing argument about that in our recent episode with Rui Teixeira. He said that Democrats are doing fine with college-educated voters, but two-thirds of Americans don't have a four-year degree. And in this podcast, we're going to do kind of a follow-up, looking at another group of voters often ignored by Democrats. They're Christians, and especially Catholics, who were among America's biggest group of swing voters. We hear from Lene Erickson. I don't want to be part of a Democratic Party that is only appealing to college-educated voters. I think I would say, like, we should try to get what we can get done and then do it again, do it again and do it again instead of holding out and making the perfect the enemy of the good. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How How do do we we fix it? it? How do we fix it? Well, Jim, here at How Do We Fix It, it's a summer of sharing. Several of our summer episodes are repeats, and others are shared with the help of fellow podcasters. Today, we're partnering with a show that has a great name, Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Earlier this year, they featured an interview with Lene Erickson. She's the Senior Vice President for Social Policy and Politics at Third Way, a centrist Democratic think tank in Washington. Lene was a member of a White House Advisory Council on Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships in the Obama administration. Yeah, we're going to hear more about that. She's a really engaging guest, and we will listen to edited extracts of an interview Lene did with the host of Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other, Corey Nathan. Corey spoke with Lene about her Midwest roots and growing up as a Catholic. We also hear a lot about practical as opposed to performative politics. The interview begins on a personal note, because in addition to her political research and advocacy, Lene is principal second violinist at D.C.'s Capital City Symphony. Corey Nathan asked her about that and how it relates to her political work. You know, it is actually um, kind of my reprieve time, because I find that Um, especially when you're um, privileged enough to do a job that you really love and you care about and work on things that you're thinking about all day long and 
and have a passion for, sometimes it's hard to turn your brain off. And so I find that when I am, you know, watching Netflix or just hanging out, I'm also still thinking about work. But when I'm sight reading Schubert, I can't be thinking about work. (laughs) It it really takes up all my brain space. So then after a three-hour orchestra rehearsal on a Thursday night, I feel more rested than if I had just, you know, sat on the couch and and watched The Crown. So yeah, it's actually been a a fantastic outlet for me and an opportunity to meet people that aren't always um, doing exactly what I'm doing, which is often uh, the people that you surround yourself with in DC. It almost sounds like you, your time with music, whether it's with the orchestra, or I imagine you would do some practice on your own, uh, is a similar space as a lot of folks have discovered meditation, for example. Yes. Yeah. I'm also a big yoga meditation person. The impact on my brain is very similar. I think it's like just having um, your brain fully taken up by something that's not your day to day really helps when you have to get back into the day to day to feel like you can keep going. Now, how does being a musician shape or influence your work in politics? Or do you specifically keep those two disciplines completely separate? You know, I think that they certainly influence each other in my level of creativity. I think one of the things that we really focus um, focus on at Third Way and, and have done really well of the two decades that the organization has been around almost is is trying to kind of take risks and be creative. And there are so many myriad problems in our current po- political system in our current in our country, and the the same solutions or approaches that we've been using for the past however many decades haven't fixed them. So we need to try some other stuff. So I think the improvisational quality and creative quality of of playing music um, definitely helps me to be a little bit more improvisational in my work and say, okay, well, that didn't really work out. Let's go try this other thing. Or what if we thought about it a completely different way? Yeah. It seems like a lot of the conversations I've heard you in are with folks that are coming from within a silo of sorts, Uh, especially when you're talking with someone on the Democratic side, which you identify with. I think you call yourself a pragmatic progressive. That's right. But I, I wonder how unique that is. Or are there more people who here can have those conversations with family members who maybe even voted for Trump? Or is it as much of a bubble um, that that people stay within on each side and you're really more of the unicorn? Well, I think I'm more of a unicorn in Washington, D.C. than elsewhere. <laughs> I think um, in the country, there, you know, the bulk of people can have a conversation about, you know, a lot of different things that they might disagree about and, and do so in a way that um, doesn't come to blows. Um, in Washington, that's less true. <laughs> so I often describe my work as um, saying, you know, especially on these kind of social issues that we work on, whether it's immigration or guns or LGBT or abortion, that most people in Washington are paid to make those issues seem black and white. That's their job is to say either you're evil or you're on the good side, like be on the right side of history or not. And the truth is that all of those issues are much more gray. And that's what most people in the country think is that, you know, we do need to wrestle with some of these things and, and it's not completely black and white. And so, you know, one of my favorite um, pollsters, Robbie Jones at Public Religion Research, asked this great question in a survey where he asked separately, he, instead of saying, are you pro-life or pro-choice? He asked two separate questions. He said, do you identify as pro-life? And then in a Another question later said, do you identify as pro-choice? 
And there was a huge chunk of Americans that said yes to both of those. Oh, that's interesting. And if you ask it as an either or, you're never going to figure that out, right? Like when you look at it, you're going to see 50.1% on this side and and 49.9% on this side if you only present it as um, you have to pick one or the other. But actually, there's a lot of folks who believe that um, 7 in 10 in a recent poll we did believe that abortion is the taking of a human life. But they also believe that uh, it should be um, something that is a decision between a woman, her family, and her doctor. And there's about 40% of the country that says yes to both of those things. Yeah. And so much of our political conversation acts as if those people don't exist, acts as if you have to only believe one of those statements is true. So trying to help people understand the complications of that narrative is like not necessarily a popular thing to do in DC, <laughs> but I think it's really needed. Yeah. Yeah. So you you were trained as a lawyer and, and have experience professionally as a lawyer, but a lot of the conversations I hear you participate in, you're answering folks that have really strong opinions about something with data. I was wondering where you learned the art of getting these insights. You know, I, so often think that most political pollsters or advocacy groups that are using public opinion research in politics um, use it to try to prove their own point. They use it to try to prove that they're right. Um, you know, I can I can write 18 more polls that tell you that, you know, 95% of people support universal background checks. Great. But that's not actually like moving us forward. because <laughs> Those people aren't all in Congress, unfortunately. But what we try to do is understand what the tensions are underneath something. So why is it that the fact that we have 95% support for universal background checks doesn't translate into policy change? And the answer is because most people don't think it will actually impact crime rates. And most people don't think that it is um, something that would impact their community. So when you have like, you know, surface level agreement to this question, but people don't think it's that important or that impactful, um, you're not going to have the the policy change that you need. Um, and asking those questions is very unpopular because the, a lot of the gun safety groups would rather not ask those questions. They'd rather yeah. just have the 95%. Um, but I think in order to build kind of sustainable change over time, you have to understand what's really going on with people so that you can persuade them, so that you can address the concerns that they have. And how are you going to do that if you don't know what's holding them back? It seems like your subtext often uh, when in these conversations is, do you want to be right or do you want to win? <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I was actually curious about another um, situation, uh, another experience you had on President. You, you've mentioned your family's involvement with the Catholic Church and your time on President Obama's advisory council on faith-based and neighborhood partnerships. Are you are you uh, still a religious person or? I, I'm not um, active in any organized religion. Um, I have my own spirituality, but uh, I am also a, a gay woman who grew up in a time when the Catholic Church wasn't really about that. So uh, um, have have not participated in any formal way. Um, in fact, I used to up until tw- 2012. Um, my dad and I would do the Christmas services. We were the the singers at the Christmas services, the two of us. And that year was the year that Minnesota had a ballot initiative on marriage. And the Minnesota Catholic Church was the number one contributor to stopping marriage equality in the state. <laughs> so I decided that it was time for me to stop, you know, singing at the at the church masses at that point. Um, but that doesn't erase, you know, many like four decades of of, you know, my own personal experience. 
I, I wanted to get back to the uh, advisory council, faith-based yeah. neighborhood partnerships. I've heard from others on that um, on that advisory council that it, that it was it would sometimes get stuck because some advisors uh, close uh, in the administration and often. Uh, the loudest voices in the room had this default aversion for religious folks and religion yeah. in general. So is that fair to say, or did you have a different experience? I think that's fair to say. And, you know, I, I will tell you, you know, the fact that I was the one on the, on the faith-based council tells you how short the bench is of Democrats who they could appoint that even knew how to talk about you know, issues of faith or to people of faith. <laughs> because as you said, I'm not a practicing Catholic, nor is it my job. You know, my job is to understand what kind of swing voters think about things and how to persuade them. I don't have any kind of specific faith-based component to my job. It just happens that, you know, a lot of times swing voters are also people of faith. And um, so I had some experience in trying to understand that view. But when they came to me and said, will you be on the faith-based council? I was like, Really? Is this because you don't know any other Democrats? Like, I don't know <laughs> what qualifies me to be that. You're like, person. have we met? <laughs> yeah. I mean, and I think that, you know, I was one of that. It was their third advisory council on faith-based and neighborhood partnerships. Um, and we had helped them find people for the first one because we had done an initiative in um, 2008. My colleague, Rachel Lazar, led it on bringing together, we called it Come Let Us Reason Together. And we brought um, evangelicals and other conservative uh, religious leaders together with progressive leaders to talk about whether there was some common ground that we could find that we could then support newly elected President Obama in taking. So it was reducing the need for abortion while protecting the right to have one by funding teen pregnancy prevention programs and also um, health care for young children, for people who can't afford it. Um, it was ending torture because this was coming right off the George W. Bush administration. It was employment non-discrimination for gay and lesbian folks and, uh, and immigration reform. And so um, we brought some of these big megachurch pastors to the Obama administration, um, and they put them on their first um, council. Um, but that council decided to tackle the issue of abortion. And that was very difficult. Yeah. Um, and it was in the midst of, if you recall, the debate about Obamacare and whether there was going to be taxpayer funds used for abortion services now that the government was going to be more involved in health care. And it really just burned the whole thing down because it created so much strife um, and, and just ill will on that advisory committee that um, the next time around, they decided to do human trafficking because they figured no one can be you know opposed to stopping human trafficking. Yeah. So let's go from abortion to like the most common ground issue possible. And then my, uh, my council was tasked with understanding how community-based organizations could help advance anti-poverty efforts. Um, so again, you know, a, a much less controversial topic than the first one. Um, so, you know, they came to me and said, will you be on this council? And I thought it was super fun and great. I got to meet a bunch of people that I wouldn't have before, um, but it also really showed you what a disconnect there is between democratic politics and and people of faith who represent a majority of this country and including a majority of people that vote for Democrats. Yeah. <laughs> so at the same time, I went to I went to the Democratic National Convention that year, it was nominating Hillary Clinton. And they had all these buttons everywhere, right? It was like, um, newly married for Hillary and yoga instructors for Hillary. And like, literally every adjective you could think of about a human had a button for it. 
And there was no Catholics for Hillary, Christians for Hillary. There was Muslims for Hillary, um, because that's seen as like, a, you know, a, an outgroup potentially. Um, but there, there wasn't anything for somebody who might want to say, I'm a person of faith and I support Hillary Clinton. And I thought that really spoke, you know, a, a lot about the state of where the Democratic you know, leaders were at that point, that they wouldn't even have thought to print that, yeah. even though it's a descriptor that would describe most of their coalition. The abortion issue is just a non-starter. Yeah. So it, it always makes me wonder, can, can we, whether it's about uh, folks who are pro-life, uh, who identify as strictly pro-life, or more in general, can the Democratic Party um, hold space for folks that, that aren't orthodox on that don't check every box you know god forbid so to speak um there should be a nominee of like a pro-life democrat uh who's who's running for you know for a seat in congress for example yeah i mean i think that we have to try to create space because um you know the democratic party has to be a big tent or else it cannot win um they're just it it happens to be that Republicans have a bigger base. So oftentimes in certain places and, and in key states, they can win by just riling up people who already agree with them. Yeah. That is not true for Democrats. And especially with the Republican Party, you know, following this more and more extreme vision, um, which looks very different than it did when I first got to D.C. in 2006, you know, where, where their party has gone. Um, it is all the more important to me as a as a you know center left democrat that we maintain that big tent coalition and and not say if you don't agree with me on every single thing on this questionnaire then um you know you can't be in our club we we really need to be bringing people into the club not kicking them out everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist fitting into their schedule and of course the cost well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. You're listening to an interview with Lene Erickson. We're sharing it from the podcast, Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. And this is How Do We Fix It? I'm Jim Meggs. And I'm Richard Davies. If you like what we're doing at How Do We Fix It? Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. And a good way to find us is also at our website, howdowefixit.me. You can sign up for the newsletter, a new one coming out this week. And it always helps if you give us a review and rating on whatever your podcast platform of choice might be. Five stars, please, unless you you vehemently uh, disagree, in which case, send us an email instead. Our website is also a good way of asking us questions and getting answers. Now, back to the interview with Corey Nathan and Lene Erickson. 
a lot of the work that you do at Third Way is illuminating the plurality of voters who don't align with the extremes of one party or the other. So could you tell us a little bit more about Third Way or as an organization and specifically what you do with Third Way? Yeah, so Third Way um, was formed in uh, right after the loss of John Kerry in 2004 to George W. Bush, trying to think about how Democrats could um, continue to win and build majority coalitions in, you know, in a system that is, at least in, in some ways, overrepresents um, rural areas, you know, redder areas, specifically the Senate and the Electoral College. Um, you know, you can run up the score in California as much as you want, but you only get two Senate votes for yeah. California. Yeah. And so does South Dakota. So, um, you know, there are these kind of structural things about our system that I don't think are changing anytime soon. Um, and the bases are asymmetrical. There is a smaller progressive base than there is a conservative base in the country. So, you know, Third Way was formed to try to think about how can we um, build sustainable progress by bringing together a bunch of people who support that thing. And, you know, I think part of what we try to avoid is um, it's very bad policymaking to do a bunch of changes. And then in the next two years, you undo all those changes. And then the mm. next two years, you redo all those changes. And that's really a lot of what we've seen you know, over the past couple of decades is executive action that then gets overturned. And, um, you know, the, the one that makes my heart hurt the most right now is the dreamers, you know, the, the DACA program, which allowed folks who have never known any country to be their home, except for this one. Um, but were brought here without a, a proper documentation as children, um, that, that program is about to be struck down by the Supreme Court, and it is going to leave a million people who came out, were promised, you know, safety, are now sitting on a list in the Department of Homeland Security. Um, it's going to leave them without any options. And yeah. that's horrible. That is not how we should be governing in our country. And so I think, um, you know, our general proposition, whether it's on clean energy or the economy or higher education or these social issues, is to try to think about how can we make pragmatic, progressive progress that's actually sustainable, that doesn't create a backlash that undoes it later in public opinion, that doesn't, you know, leave some folks behind and then um, create people that are atomized against that thing, um, but really tries to make sure that the policy changes we're making in the country have broad support. You, you talk about being a pragmatic progressive and creating effective legislation. Can you unpack that? What does it mean to be a pragmatic progressive? Yeah, I'll give you a, a really specific example from this past summer. So um, we were helping the gun safety movement and um, members of Congress try to figure out whether there was any action that could be taken after the horrible massacre at Uvalde. You know, we were all shocked by that. Um, and we've worked on guns since the founding of Third Way worked very closely with the Sandy Hook families after that horrible massacre and almost got background checks across the finish line. But it was clear that that wasn't going to be on the table this time. Like we couldn't even pass it when we had nearly 60 Democratic votes in the Senate, let alone 50. We were worried that what was going to happen there was the kind of advocacy organizations would say, we want universal background checks and an assault weapons ban or nothing. And the, you know, NRA folks would say, great, we'll do nothing. Um, but instead, what ended up happening, and I think this is in great credit to the 
you know, the senators who negotiated it and also to the gun safety movement who said, we will take any progress we can make. Um, they managed to get the first bipartisan gun bill across the finish line in three decades. Yeah. I was 10 last time we did something about guns. And it invested in mental health services. It made it easier and incentivized states to create red flag laws for people um, to be able to say, I'm very concerned about this person and the fact that they might be violent. And so can we temporarily remove their access to firearms? Um, you know, really good, important policies, um, closing the boyfriend loophole, which was basically saying, you know, if you were married to someone and you had a, a domestic violence incident that you were convicted of, um, that could limit your access to firearms. But if you were not married to them, then it wouldn't. There is a huge, huge connection between gun violence and domestic violence, and, and it's a, a big driver of, of um, you know, murders of people that are being domestically abused. So uh, there, those are important things that got done. And I think there, you know, there are some who would say, well, you know, that's that's just like nibbling around the edges and, you know, giving the Republicans something to say that they did, even though it didn't address the bigger issues. What I would say is we got to take what we can get. And also by doing so, we create an incentive to come back and do it again. Yeah. You've got people like John Cornyn, who literally were Senate senator from Texas, was standing on the floor of the Senate with Senator Kirsten Sinema and said, okay, let's do immigration next, because he felt good about getting right. it done. He wanted to do something. It happened in his state. And, and he's a human being who saw what happened at Uvalde and felt like I have to do something. Well, he's also in the state where the kids were in cages. Like He may feel now he can do something there, especially if he doesn't get a real backlash from the right. If he, you know, feels supported, then he can take the next step. And, you know, I just think creating those kinds of incentives is is what we need to do. And too often it's an all or nothing proposition. Um, you know, the kind of opposite example is um, there were a lot of folks working on some compromise legislation around Roe Ro versus Wade and the reproductive rights movement said, no, we want the Women's Health Protection Act or nothing. And, um, you know, that's a very different approach. And so I, I think I would say, like, we should try to get what we can get done and yeah. then do it again, and do it again and do it again, instead of holding out and making the perfect the enemy of the good. Now, what is the current makeup of the Democratic Party? Have you taken a look at that post-2022 election? Yeah, I think it's clear that the increase um, in education polarization um, has really changed both parties' coalitions over the past couple of elections. Before 2016, there wasn't a big difference um, between how people voted um, based on whether or not they had a college degree. So there might have been uh, a difference based on gender or race, you know, the average man would vote different than the average woman, the average, you know, African American might vote different than the, the average white voter. Um, but really, what started to come into play in, in 2016 and beyond was huge divergences among people of the same race of different educational credentials. And so Democrats keep increasing their support among college educated voters of every race, but they are losing support from non-college educated voters of every race. And it happened, it started with white non-college voters, which was a big topic of conversation, obviously, when Trump was elected. But it has continued with non-college voters of color. And we have 
continued to see an erosion of the Democratic Party support there. I think that's very disconcerting because, you know, it, in its best iteration, the Democratic Party is supposed to be the party of people who work hard, you know, the party of people who want to earn a good life. Um, and if we continue to only be able to appeal to college-educated voters, it's only about a third of the electorate. <laughs> it doesn't make up a winning coalition. Um, and it kind of skews our priorities and, and our worldview. It makes us um, concentrate more on things like you know, student loan cancellation than things like investing in apprenticeships. Um, it just, it changes the policies that you support um, when your coalition shifts like that. So I don't want to be part of a Democratic Party that is only appealing to college-educated voters and making people without a four-year degree feel like I look down upon them. That's not who I am, and that's not the, the party I want to convey. But I think increasingly, that is the kind of silo in which folks live in DC. And so they, they can't even see that, you know, their, their friend group is not necessarily representative of most of the country. Lene Erickson speaking with Corey Nathan. And thanks to Corey and his podcast, Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. If you want to hear the full interview with Lene and Corey, listen to other guests and hear a lot more about their podcast, go to their website, which is politicsandreligion.us or .us. We're now lining up guests for our fall shows. Richard and I will have more, hopefully, polite disagreements <laughs> as the fall advances. And we'll be sharing new recommendations about books, movies, podcasts, and more in the fall. Miranda Schaefer is our producer. Thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.